Give me a check on that. Check, check. Is that working? You're, you're, you're good to go. Wonderful. So let me turn that like this. And you rock it out, man. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Good morning. Uh, very excited to be with you here this morning and grateful for the opportunity to come back. Uh, if you, the text we'll be, pre, we'll be looking at today is Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. And you'll find that either in your Bible, on your app, or in the bulletin in front of you. So if you'll turn there with me, I will uh, read it, and you can follow along, and then we'll dive into what God's Word says for us today. Genesis 12, start, starting with verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well for me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Nathan. I don't mean to interrupt your flow. No, go for can it. Can you guys hear okay in the back? Because I can, I'm, I'm like, I can mic him. If, would that be helpful? I could, I could holler. We good? Okay. No, you're fine. I just have such a loud voice. I forget that others might need a mic because uh, I'm so loud. But, okay, if you guys are good. You're good? Okay, great. Take it away. No, thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Well, uh, I'll transition by praying and asking the Spirit to be with us. Uh, so, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word your commitment to revealing yourself to us so that we might know you. I pray that you'd be here now in this time as we look at a story from Abram's life. Teach us about yourself. Grow our faith and our love for you and your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, I uh, have a friend who, several years ago, unfortunately, had to divorce her husband because he was uh, serially unfaithful to her. They had two children, and she got sole custody of those children. And fast forward a few years, she meets a wonderful Christian man, and they become engaged. Now, her ex-husband finds out about this engagement, and uh, out of spite and envy, he decides to try to mess up their plans and sue for custody of her children. And so they go through this long legal process, and the judge ultimately rules that my friend, she can retain custody of her children, 
but she has to remain in her state of residence. Now the problem is, she and her fiance have already planned to move to his house, which is a couple states away. And so this throws a wrench in their plan and forces them to make a tough decision. Are they going to stay with the plan that they have, move in with him after the marriage, bring her kids with them, and then see what the judge decides after that? Or are they going to have to throw that whole plan out, refigure all the job situations, buy a new house in her state, and stay there? Either way you go, it's a tough decision, and there's no certain outcome. And it's frustrating, because you'd think in this situation that God would be pleased to bring these children into a good home where the father and mother uh, can found their relationship in Christ and raise these children to love and worship Him. And it seems like everything is going against that plan. And so they wondered, and maybe sometimes you find yourself in a similar situation, and you wonder, what is God doing here? Where is He? So, though you may not find yourself in their exact situation, uh, we all encounter situations or crises that are difficult where we do not know the right thing to do. We don't know to go to the right or to the left. And God seems distant. We don't hear from him. So in these cases, when life throws you kind of a curveball, we wonder if God has forgotten us. What situations have you been in recently that are are like this? Uh, Crises in your life where evil seems like it's finally going to win? or whether the brokenness of the fall feels like it will finally outpace God's redemptive purposes in your life. Perhaps a loved one has been struck down with a serious illness, or perhaps you have been struck down with an illness. Or maybe you were on a career track that you thought, this is God's vocation for my life, this is where he is calling me, and then you lose your job, and now you have no sense of what to do with your life. So we all encounter these desperate situations, And again, when we encounter them, we wonder, has God forgotten us? And the real question I think that we're asking in these times, and the question that this text addresses, is will God prove faithful in the midst of life's crises? Will he be there when it matters most? Is he going to show up to be with us at the bedside in the hospital? Will he be with us through the process of searching out a new job? And in in different ways for each of us, this is one of the most common and challenging questions that we ask ourselves as we seek to live the life of faith that God has called us to. And so with that, let us now look at how Abram deals with a curveball that life threw him. So I'm going to recap where Genesis has taken us so far. We started in the beginning by being introduced to this God that has created a wonderful creation. He's created the heavens and the earth. Then the next scene, we're introduced to two of his creatures, Adam and Eve, who rebel against his plan and sin and break this good creation. Then we find out that God isn't done with this yet. He actually makes a promise, a promise to Eve, that one day her offspring or her seed will come and crush the head of the serpent, the one who deceived her in the first place, and restore creation to its original intent. Fast forward a couple chapters, and we see how that promise actually becomes a little more particular in the person of Abram. God calls Abram 
to be a part of his redemptive purposes in the world. And he gives Abram promises. He promises to give him land, which is the land of Canaan. He promises to make him a great nation. And he promises to bless him and to bless those who bless him in order that he would be a blessing to all those around him. But he also promises to curse those who dishonor him. And now we enter into this text, this passage, Genesis 12, where a wrench is thrown into the plan. Conflict arises. We have these great promises that God has given to Abram, but there's famine in the promised land. Abram's life and the life of his family is threatened because they don't have access to food anymore. So what will happen? Will Abram die? Before to ask, will God really come through on the promises that he just made a couple verses ago. Now we see that Abram is faced with his own dilemma. Does he decide to stay in the land in the midst of famine, unsure of whether he's going to be able to provide food for his family, unsure of how this uh, promise that he'll become a great nation will come to pass if, he, uh, if his family passes away because they don't have anything to eat? Or will he go down to Egypt One of the only places that is safe from famine because of the Nile River flowing through it, making it a fertile and fruitful place. So as we enter this story, we see that there are three scenes that we move through, like any good story. The first scene and the last scene are sort of parallel in that it's like the camera is focusing in on the action and we see dialogue between the characters. And that's the first scene we have Abram talking to Sarai and the last scene we have Pharaoh talking to Abram. But the middle scene, we zoom out and pan out and we get a bigger picture. Action happens really fast. In the space of a few short verses, a ton of things are going on. We see that Pharaoh will take Sarai in that scene. So as we head into scene one, uh, we should probably address the elephant in the room, which is, uh, what is Abram doing? If you've grown up in the church, I think We all have kind of read this story as, man, Genesis 12, at the very beginning, Abram is an exemplar of faith. He's living in this city, minding his own business. A God whom he doesn't know calls him out to a different land, and obediently he picks up everything and heads out. What a paragon of faith. But now, what is he doing? He's forsaking his faith. He's not believing in God's promises for him, and instead he's running down to Egypt and telling his wife to pretend to be his sister. Or maybe uh, you don't come from a church background and you're, uh, you're hearing this story for the first time. And to you, it just sounds like Abram is such a chauvinist. What is he doing uh, treating his wife this way? So these are kind of maybe the two lenses that we view this story through. And I want to offer a third way that I think will help us to make sense, not only of these first few verses, but to set the context of the passage as a whole. So that we see we get maybe a little too distracted with Abram and forget to see that the story is actually about what God is doing. And so, getting the third way <clears throat> is, if you really try to enter into Abram's story, he's living in a strange land where there is no food, and he has to make a decision for his family. How will he provide for them? Well, he chooses to go down to Egypt. And on the way, he has a fear he is very afraid that the Egyptians are going to see his wife. And Abram knows that he married up. He knows that, that Sarai is beautiful. She's gorgeous. 
And so he knows that other guys are going to be checking her out as well. And he's afraid that they will kill him and take her. And then what will, where will that leave the promises of God? So while we might not agree with the way that Abram's gone about approaching this situation, I want us to try to at least empathize with the fact that he had to make some tough decisions. And he, he made the decisions he made, and as best he could, stepped out trying to, trying to preserve God's promises, trying, trying to see what it looks like for God to still be able to make him into a great nation. And so, severe famine, no clear word from the Lord, which kind of makes Abram feel a little more like us. The beginning of Genesis 12, the Lord is speaking directly with Abram, but now he's not giving any clear indication. I think that's more where we find ourselves day to day with decisions that we have to make, with ways that we have to step out in faith. So like us, Abram needed to exercise faith and wisdom with the limited knowledge that he had of what God was up to and what he needed to, how he needed to respond. So again, his ultimate decision was to try to protect his family and the promised seed, which is, he's a great nation, the seed that God promised to Eve in Genesis 3 is supposed to come through him, so he's trying to figure out how to make What's his role in protecting all of this? And we should also note that his fear maybe isn't as unfounded as we would initially think. If we fast forward a couple hundred years to the, the greatest king that Israel ever had, King David. What happens in his life? He sees a beautiful woman who is married to a different man, to Uriah. So he kills Uriah and takes Bathsheba for his own wife. So it's not... It's, Abraham isn't crazy. This is probably, he's familiar with, with the situation of Egypt, with their reputation, and uh, he's probably reasonably afraid. So they leave Canaan for Egypt. There's, kinda, there's a story that I think illustrates the opposite point of what's going on here, but I think that will eventually lead to helping us better understand the point the text is making. And you may have heard... Uh, and this point may be apropos of this week, given that it's so rainy, but there's a, there's a story about a man who is caught in a flood. Let's call him Adam. And he, the flood rose, and the flood rose, so he climbed out of his house and got onto his roof. Eventually, a man in a rowboat rose up and says, Hey, hey, get in my boat. I'll save you. And Adam says, No, that's okay. Keep on going. I've been praying. I have faith. The Lord will save me. A little while later, water continues to rise. A motorboat comes passing by, and... The driver says, hey, come on in. I'll save you. I've got room for you. Adam again says, no, no, I'm okay. I've been praying. I believe that the Lord will save me. So the motorboat says, okay, and drives off. The water levels continue to rise, and a helicopter comes along. Over the loud horn, they said, hey, we've got room up here. We can lift you to safety. And Adam waves him on and says, no, it's okay. I've been praying. God is going to save me. So the helicopter somewhat hesitantly leaves. Eventually, the flood levels rise, and uh, Adam gets swept away in the flood and drowns, sadly. So he gets to heaven. He meets with God and says, God, I had faith in you. I, th- I thought you were going to save me. God says, I sent a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more were you looking for? So it's a bit of a silly story, but it illustrates the point is that... Um, Sometimes while we wait, we're waiting, we're in a situation, we don't know what to do, and we're waiting for God to do something to give us a sign, to speak to us in some way, to make his will known to us, and we don't hear anything. 
And in those times, maybe we assume that God doesn't care about us at all or that he's not actively working in this particular situation in our lives. He's neglected this area. While he might be involved in other areas, this one he has ignored. Uh, But that's not what we see Abram doing here. Abram is a man who is, however imperfectly, stepping out and taking an action in faith, trying to understand how he is supposed to protect the seed that God promised will come through him, trying to figure out how he's supposed to protect his family, whose lives he's been entrusted with. So Abram steps out in faith and takes an action. So when we find ourselves questioning uh, whether God will prove faithful in the midst of life's crises, uh, maybe I want to suggest he's actually present through his silence. What if God uh, did not reveal himself because he has bigger plans, bigger plans for us? What if God desires that his children actually grow in their faith and he uses situations, and particularly his silences in those situations, as an invitation for us to step out in faith and trust him and believe in him. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of the more prolific authors in, in the last century, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and I think he gets at this point well. <clears throat> if you're unfamiliar with the work, uh, Screwtape Letters is C.S. Lewis's imagination of what de- kind of what devils talk about when they are thinking about tempting human beings. And so the book is written as if a kind of older devil is writing to a younger devil, the older devil being Screwtape, writing to Wormwood, his nephew, instructing him in the best practices of how to tempt humankind. So in this context, the enemy uh, is God, in this quote. Lewis writes, rather Screwtape writes, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which all trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. This morning, as you're gathered here, as you reflect on your life, is there a place where you think God is calling you to step out in faith? Are you faced with either maybe a great famine or a terrible fear? What would it look like for you to make a decision in faith, trusting in God, whether you feel his presence, whether you see him working or not? And the warning here doesn't always work out how we imagine. With my friend from earlier, she and her fiancé, had prayed through the decision to move from her house to his house, to sell her house for her to quit her job. They did all these things in faith. So when they found out about this legal decision, they wondered, what? This is not how it's supposed to turn out, God. So what sometimes, when we do step out in faith, things don't work out the way that we hope. And the point is not that our situation is supposed to get better if we act out in faith. The point is that we grow closer to God in the midst of the struggle and become more like his son. So that means at times that taking a step in faith will lead us straight from the frying pan and into the fire. And then what do we do? Let's take a look at what Abram does. Scene two, where Pharaoh takes Sarai. So again, the the camera kind of pans out and a lot of action happens in the space of a couple verses. The family reaches Egypt. 
and Abram's worst fears are now confirmed. The Egyptians do exactly what Abram thought. They see Sarai. They tell their king who she is and how beautiful she is, and he takes her to be his wife. Now, I think uh, the language here is important because it helps us interpret the intent and how we're supposed to understand the Egyptians in this passage. So, if you remember in Genesis 3, where Eve sees the fruit on the tree, she sees that it's delightful and pleasing to the eye, and so she takes it and eats it, which then leads to the first sin and the sin that breaks all creation. Well, now we see that the Egyptians, the same language is there. They see Sarai. They see her and see that she's very pleasing to the eye. She's very beautiful. And then Pharaoh takes her. And I think the author is intentionally using these words to help key us in to, these guys aren't, these guys aren't doing the right thing here. And so we go from the frying pan. Abram's family was in some danger in Canaan where there's a famine. They didn't know if they would survive. To now being in real danger. Sarai, his wife, is in the household of the most powerful man in the world at that time. So what will happen? What will happen to God's promised seed? How is Abram going to be the father of great nations? How is Abram going to be the father of the seed that will restore all of creation one day? Will God remember Abram and Sarai in their hour of desperate need? What we see, even if just a slight hint in this passage, is that God is still faithful to his promises. In a bleak situation that Abram and Sarai find themselves in, there's a hint that God is still working. Because if you remember, God promised Abram that he would bless him and bless those who bless him. And those who curse him, he will, those who dishonor him, he will curse. So we see that even in this situation where Sarai has been taken away from him and is in the house of another man, his wife, that Abraham is given wealth. He's given uh, what they would have considered wealth in those days, which are servants, camels, other, other animals for bearing burdens. And while this, this doesn't get them out of the situation, it is at least a hint that God is at work. And it's kind of like a scene in any heist movie where the protagonist who's been organizing the heist for the whole movie is cuffed and taken away by the cops. And the cop gives kind of the audience a wink to let them know that there's a plot twist about, about to happen. Not everything is as it appears. And he releases the heist guy and they continue with the heist and, and all of that. So this is, this is a hint to us that there's a plot twist about to happen. And it reminds me of a time uh, in my life back, I'm from Seattle, I went to college there, and while I was in college, I started to feel God calling me towards pastoral ministry. So as I pursued that call, uh, I started interning at my church there, and after a few years of interning, I finally got hired, and for me, this was it. This was the big moment where I was getting in my career track, this is, this is what God was calling me to, pastoral ministry, I'll work in this church and be raised up and become a pastor this way. And so I started working, and every day I was just so afraid. What if this gets taken away from me? It didn't help that the culture of the church wasn't the best, and it kind of fed into those fears, and, and eventually I did get laid off. My worst fears were realized. But a couple of weeks later, a friend of a friend hired me as an account manager at his, at his company. And it was such a blessing because 
working in, his, in the environment of his company rehabilitated me. It helped me to work through my fears. It gave me confidence again in, uh, in who I was and who God called me to be. Uh, my boss turned out to be, become a really dear and really great friend. And it was actually in this way that God used this situation to get me onto the, the right track or the track that I'm currently on for pastoral ministry because this job, I was allowed to move and work remotely so I could work through seminary and come out of seminary without any debts, and it was a huge blessing to my wife and I. And some of us have experiences similar to these, where we can tangibly see there's a crisis, and God works blessing through it. Uh, But others of us, and other crises in our lives that we'll encounter, have no hint of hope. We don't see blessing coming out of them. So how are we supposed to approach life when it feels like sometimes God remembers us and sometimes he doesn't, is he dependable? But I think we are looking for the wrong thing. Because, again, if we remember where Abram is and really try to enter into his experience, uh, this blessing probably wasn't seen as that much of a blessing in the time when he's been separated from his wife and anxious about her safety, being locked up in Pharaoh's house. I mean, sure, like, wealth is great, but... I'm sure he'd rather have his wife than all the wealth in the world. It's only after he went through this experience that he could look back and see, like, God has provided for me in that situation. In my darkest hour, God was working. So maybe we do not see the blessing right away. But if we've stepped out to walk in faith as God's children, then we are called to wrestle with God's promises God promised Abram that he would bless him and make him a great nation. God has promised us that he will work all things for the good of those who love him, as he says in Romans 8, 28. That is a promise he's given to us as his children. Now, this is an easy promise to believe when everything is going well and situations are turning out favorably. But will you choose to believe these promises to put your faith in God, that he's working for your good when all seems dark and hopeless? Will you choose to believe that God will bring blessing out of your crisis? Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest American preachers and theologians, addressed this in one of his sermons, uh, why Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. And I think three points he makes that are relevant is that if we're united with Christ, the bad things that happen to us will ultimately turn out for good. Uh, the truly good things in this life can't be taken away from us, and the best things are yet to come. So I'm sure that some of you are in or have recently gone through some terrible crises, perhaps the worst that you've ever experienced. We may never be able to see how God has been at work in that situation, at least not in this life. But together we can believe and encourage one another to believe that we have a God who will ultimately turn whatever evil we have suffered into good because he is a God that is greater than any evil or any crisis that we will face. So what does this mean for Abram now? What does this mean for us? Let's go to the final scene where Pharaoh talks to Abram. And we find that God shows up The hero who we've been waiting for, this whole story, comes to the scene. The the tension that we've been feeling is resolved when God finally 
uh, shows us that he is capable of fulfilling his promises. So he made these promises to Abram that he would bless him, that he would make a great nation of him. Those promises were threatened, and he vindicates himself in a, sh- in a scene that kind of foreshadows what happens to Israel in the exodus out of Egypt centuries later. He shows up by b- cursing Pharaoh, this Pharaoh who has dishonored Abram by taking his wife into his house. And he sent plagues against Pharaoh. And the result of this miraculous working is that the promise is safe. Sarah is released. Sarai is released to go back to Abram. Now, Pharaoh does play the victim. He does, well, you told me she was your sister, not your wife. I wouldn't have married her otherwise if I had known. But I think what we've seen of Pharaoh's character so far, who knows what he would have done if Abram had actually come and said, yeah, I'm her husband. Like, Pharaoh's character isn't, isn't so sure. So Pharaoh, he's tired of them. He sends them away. And so they take all the riches and wealth that they've inherited during their time in Egypt, and they return back to the promised land. So the seed is safe. God has vindicated himself and shown that he is faithful, that he can be depended on. So when the promises of God looked like they would fail, and his plan to redeem all of creation would come to nothing because the seed was threatened, he shows up in a big way, again, vindicating himself, saving his people, and keeping alive the hope of future redemption that would come through Abram's line. And he doesn't just do this now, he does this time and again. So we see it with Abram. We also see it with Joseph, who's sold into slavery by his brothers. And the whole world at that time falls into famine. And God uses this particular man to save not only the promised seed, but all of humanity uh, who would have otherwise starved. And then in a few centuries, we see that Joseph's descendants become slaves to an Egyptian pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, who didn't know Abram. And God uses plagues again to save his people, to save the promised line that will one day lead to the salvation of the whole world. And we see this time and time again through Israel's history, through the time of the judges, through the time of the kings. We see, it, we see, we, we see this promise threatened again when the northern tribes of Israel, after centuries of disobedience, are finally sent into exile and they're heard from no longer. But the hope is the southern tribes, though they're also sent into exile, God brings them back, he redeems them, and keeps hope alive that he will come and he will redeem all things. So finally, the seed comes. Jesus Christ, God takes on flesh. The, the, the promise that we've been waiting for centuries to be realized, he walks among us. And what happens? He gets hung on a tree. What happens? God, your promises, thousands of years we've believed in you, and now the promised seed dies? What are you doing? Then in the greatest demonstration of power that God has shown thus far, he raises Christ from the dead, vindicating himself, and in so doing, beginning the process that will restore all things, that will restore the world to the way it was supposed to be, to rid this world of death and sin and brokenness forever. And so we see at the end of this passage that God will prove faithful in life's crises. He does desire his children to grow in faith, and he will bring blessing through our crisis, the crises that we experience. But what gives us strength to have faith is God's tenacious commitment 
to protect and keep his promises. When he is silent and we are faced with a dilemma, we can step out in faith because God has shown himself worthy of our trust. When life goes dark and we are caught in a terrible crisis, we can believe that God is greater than our crisis and will work for our good because God is a God who protects and keeps his promises to us. And like Abram, one day our hero will show up and rescue us. He'll make all things new. And the faith that we have been exercising, sometimes exhaustively, as costly as it has been, it will be rewarded when we are called home to be with our Savior and live with him forever. Amen. As Heath was saying, 